Welcome back, everyone, to your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I am your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out to Maine, and this is the town of Biddeford. And I couldn't go to Maine, of course, without doing an episode on, of course, a haunted lighthouse. And this week's episode is a story on the Wood Island Lighthouse, which is located in Saco Bay. I do want to give a brief disclaimer before I get into the episode that there are accounts of murder, gun violence, and suicide. And suicide is a difficult topic, so please be advised it is reported in this episode. And if you do need support, remember you can always call the National Suicide Hotline in the United States toll-free at 1-800-273-8255. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to someone about this over the phone, you can always visit www.suicidepreventionhotline.org and chat with someone that way. Before I get into the haunted reports, I am, of course, going to cover the history of the Wood Island Lighthouse. Off of the coast of Maine is a small island called Wood Island where the lighthouse was built, and it is on Saco Bay off the coast of Maine. In 1806, the government purchased eight acres of land on Wood Island so that they could build the Wood Island Lighthouse. And the reason they wanted to build the lighthouse is there were many shipwrecks that were happening at that time. The lumber industry, the fishing industry, all sorts of things were kind of booming at this time. And they really needed a lighthouse to make it as a safe passage. As you know, nowadays, as you're coming into the shore, you can see the lights from all the homes and things like that. But at this time, remember, you would have been coming in at night. It would have been pitch black. You wouldn't have been able to see if you were at the shore or not. So the lighthouse beacons really did help. After the government had purchased the eight acres in 1806, they finished the house and the lighthouse in 1807. But it actually didn't begin functioning until 808 for various reasons, such as trying to get people to be the lighthouse keeper, putting finishing touches, and just getting everything ready. When it was originally built, it was a wooden tower that was 45 feet tall up to the beacon, and the beacon showed itself as a flashing light. It was connected to a home where the lightkeeper and his family would live, and at this time, the lightkeeper and his family, they lived here year-round. There was no going home. This was their home. They would farm. They would keep their children here. Pretty much everything that they needed would have been on site. The lighthouse, again, was important in guiding ships over to help with the growing commerce for the area of Maine. The first lighthouse keeper, he ran the lighthouse from 1809 until 1832, and his name was Philip Goldwaite. He actually ended his service in 1832 because he died in service. 
When the new lighthouse keeper took over, it was noted that the tower and the home that the families were living in was really deteriorating. Now, the tower was made of wood again, and so was the home, and they began rotting due to the weather conditions in the area. For those of you not familiar with New England winters and storms, is it is pretty tough. There's tons of snowfall. These are areas where, you know, people are getting up on top of their roof to shovel it off. There's huge waves that are coming up and hitting the lighthouse and the home due to the storms. You know, there's rain, ice, snow, everything. So, of course, after years in these conditions, everything was rotting away. So, in 1839, this was about 30 years later after it had been built, a new 44-foot stone tower was erected and a new one-story home made of granite was built for the lighthouse keeper family. So, of course, years and years, the weather conditions still plagued the tower and the home. Per reports from the people who had been living there, the base of the tower was built on an uneven foundation, and it wasn't done properly. This caused the foundation of the home and the tower to crack and shift in foundation. The walls were cracking, and this would cause leaking during storms. The wood around the windows was rotting and leaking. The mortar that they used to set the stone was actually bad, which made it even worse. And the basement would even flood, so anything they kept down there would be destroyed. And these reports of the issues with the home and the lighthouse, they began just three years after the lighthouse was built. So this would have been about 1942-ish. For years and years, of course, the people who lived at the lighthouse pled for better conditions for it to be repaired, but the government, they just shelled out a huge sum of money three years earlier to build the new house and the new tower, so they refused and were pretty much like, well, deal with it. In 1851, the lighthouse keeper was Nathaniel Verrill, and he lived there with his wife, Mary. Mary actually died at the lighthouse, and he stayed on as lighthouse keeper for another five years before he passed away at the lighthouse as well. So finally, after years of complaints, the government finally agreed to renovate the lighthouse and the home. And 16 years after the first complaints were issued in 1858, the tower was finally constructed and finally fully renovated. When it was put up, a new one-and-a-half-story home was constructed. The new tower was also painted red so that it wouldn't be confused with the lighthouse at Cape Elizabeth, just up the coast. In 1872, a wooden structure was added to the lighthouse to house the lighthouse's first fog bell. And the fog bell was a big issue as sailors couldn't always see the beacon from the lighthouse as sometimes in Maine, the fog is really, really thick. So this causes the ship captains to get disoriented in which direction they're going on. It can cause shipwrecks, things like that. And the bell provided an auditory guidance through the fog for the ships that were coming in. This wasn't a small bell. This has to be heard for quite a long distance off the coast. And the bell weighed over 1,300 pounds. For those of you who might be familiar with the Liberty Bell, if you've seen it here in Pennsylvania, that bell is 2,080 pounds. So it's quite a bit smaller, 
but it gives you a little reference for how big it would have been. When the foghorn was sounded, it would sound every 25 seconds to help guide those coming into shore. Unfortunately, in 1890, there was a storm that swept the fog bell into the ocean, so it had to be replaced. And it was actually replaced with one that was a little smaller that weighed about 1,200 pounds. The original bell actually was later on recovered from the ocean and actually can be seen on display. The fog bell was also used not only for helping guide ships in, but it was also a friendly signal. Steamer ships who would pass by would actually salute the bell in passing by blowing their horns, and in response, the lighthouse would ring the bell, so kind of like their version of waving hello. From 1886 until 1905, the lighthouse keeper was a man named Thomas Henry Orcutt. So he was keeper for about 19 years, and during his tenure, he saw multiple things happen on the island, including shipwrecks. But the most famous incident in his career and on the whole island happened on September 1st of 1896. This incident actually occurred between two men named Howard Hobbs and Frederick Milliken. This is an official story that is based on newspaper reports and eyewitness accounts from Milliken's wife and a man named William Moses. So all of the things I'm going to say right now are fact that I was able to find out. 37-year-old Frederick Milliken was actually a fisherman, but he was also a game warden and a police officer who lived on the island. He lived there with his wife as well as his three stepchildren. The Millikens lived in a one-and-a-half-story home on Wood Island, and they also owned another building which they had used previously as a hen house. These two buildings were actually the only other structures on Wood Island at the time other than the lighthouse and the lighthouse keeper's home. William Moses and Howard Hobbs were both fishermen and sailors who lived together on Wood Island. They had rented and converted Milliken's hen house into a place to lay their head. And while that might sound like it's pretty small, remember this was before indoor plumbing and all that, so they didn't really need that much space. And the building did have a loft area overhead, which could be reached by a ladder. And what they had done is they put a couch up there so the men could actually sleep at night. And the ground floor allowed them room to cook over the fire and things like that. The men were actually supposed to be, of course, paying a small sum to Milliken for renting this space. The night before the incident, both Howard Hobbs and William Moses went out to the nearby town of Old Orchard Bay. Hobbs's family actually lived here, so they visited for the day and enjoyed themselves. After their family visit, the two began drinking, and per officer report, they began to be quite disorderly and actually had to talk their way out of being arrested by the police officer. After they had almost been arrested, they decided to sleep it off for that night before the next day rowing towards Wood Island in their boat. During the row over to Wood Island, they both drank quite a bit of liquor again. But Howard Hobbs was actually more intoxicated than William Moses. They reached the island at about 4.30 p.m. the day of the incident, which, remember, was September 1st of 1896. 
As they pulled into shore, Frederick Milliken was actually working with his stepson near where they pulled in. Remember, the two men were supposedly renting the hen house from Milliken, and he asked to speak to Howard Hobbs, who acknowledged him but made no attempt to stop and talk to him. He just kept walking to the home where they stayed. Frederick Milliken was reportedly wanting to talk to Hobbs about the rent as he hadn't paid in some time. Frederick Milliken followed them till he got to his house, where he put on his vest, which donned his policeman pin. Hobbs and Moses, on the other hand, had made it back to their bachelor pad, hen house, whatever you want to call it. And Hobbs, when he got there, picked up his rifle, saying he wanted to go visit Milliken. When Moses told him to leave the rifle, Hobbs said no, as he might want to hunt some birds for a bit. While walking, the pair were headed past Milliken's home when they ran into him near the gate to Milliken's home. Milliken watched them walk towards him and then asked Hobbs if the rifle was loaded. Hobbs told Milliken that it wasn't loaded, and Milliken then started walking towards him, stating that he wanted to check. As he walked towards him, Hobbs began to raise his rifle to his shoulder and actually just shot Milliken right in the chest. Frederick Milliken's wife was actually standing on the stoop of the house and witnessed the event. She ran out to her husband, and she and Moses assisted him into the house and laid him in the bed. Moses left with Milliken's stepson to quickly fetch the doctor as they could tell that he was pretty badly injured. They reached the doctor by phone, and the doctor immediately hit the road to get to them, though the only way he remembered to get to the island was going to take some time as he had to go by boat. In the meantime, Frederick Milliken was bleeding pretty profusely and fluctuated in his level of consciousness. Now, you might be wondering what happened with Mr. Hobbs. Well, after he shot Milliken, he sobered up pretty quickly and was shocked by what he had done. He offered his assistance to Mrs. Milliken, and when Milliken complained the boots he was wearing hurt his feet, Hobbs actually took them off and offered comfort to the man he had shot. Hobbs then actually blamed Milliken for him shooting him, stating he wouldn't have fired the gun if Milliken hadn't tried to take the gun from him. Though Milliken at this point was so weak, his reply couldn't be understood. At this point, Hobbs grabbed the gun again, and Mrs. Milliken asked to take the gun for him, but Hobbs then threatened to shoot her if she tried to take it from him. Milliken, at this point, who was pretty comatose almost, was so scared for his wife, he actually managed to sit up telling Hobbs she'd never hurt him and to please not kill his wife. Hobbs then said he wouldn't shoot anyone as long as they didn't try to take his gun, though he did proceed to lower his weapon. Mrs. Milliken convinced Hobbs to go to the lighthouse to let the keeper know what had happened. Hobbs left the Milliken household and went up to the Wood Island Lighthouse, where he met the keeper at the time named Orcutt. He told Orcutt everything that had gone on, and Orcutt then rushed to the Milliken home to help as he could. He stayed at the lighthouse helping Mrs. Milliken until, sadly, Frederick Milliken actually ended up passing away. 
I'm not sure what Hobbs was doing in the meantime of when Orcutt had been helping at the Millican household, but sometime later, Hobbs ended up returning to the Millican household. When he heard that Frederick Millican had died, he told everyone there at the home that he was going to leave and put a bullet through his head. And then he left. A short time afterwards, a gunshot was heard, but no one went to investigate at the time. Moses, who's the man that shared the penthouse with Hobbs, he returned from his journey of ringing for the doctor and heard what had happened. He ventured towards the home he shared with Hobbs, and when he entered the home, he climbed up the steps to the loft, and there he found Hobbs laid out on the couch. Hobbs was dead at this point from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to his temple. Next to him was a note to Moses bidding him a good day and asking him to deliver a sealed note to a girl he'd been sweet on in Biddeford. The doctor, another officer, an undertaker, and a coroner arrived throughout the night and into the next day. They had all thought that the shooting would have been accidental. I mean, this little island, not a lot of people there. Nobody really thought a murder would have taken place. And so it really surprised them to hear it was a murder as well as a suicide. Per reports, the two men had been friendly except for Milliken having to occasionally scold Hobbs as he never paid his rent. Some residents in the city did report Milliken telling them that he told Hobbs that he had to be out on June 1st due to lack of payment. So Mrs. Milliken said it was only because of the liquor that the shooting had happened. She stated that she didn't think that Hobbs would have done it as, you know, they were friendly. And as far as the residents reporting that Hobbs had stated they had to be out on June 1st, I mean, this was September that this happened, so I'm not sure how likely that would have been the case. There have been some questions of the suicide of Mr. Hobbs. The rifle positioning where it was would have left him having to pull the trigger with his foot. And also reports state that Milliken was no longer a special officer at the time of the shooting. A month before, the position had actually been given to the lighthouse keeper, Orcutt's son. So I'm not sure why he donned his vest and things like that. A little suspect as well in the suicide is the coroner was the one to arrive last. And at that point when he got there, the bodies had already been cleaned and ready for burial. An investigation was also deemed unnecessary, so this led to people thinking that possibly the wife did it after he had killed her husband, and also the note was really hastily scrawled. And, I mean, I don't know that that seems very strange. It's, I mean, the guy was kind of drunk still. He had just killed somebody. He was upset. He probably would have wanted to get it over with, but I could see why it would be a little suspect. I mean, people heard the gunshot, knew it happened, and nobody went to investigate. I, I just don't know. It seems a little off, but again, I'm not sure. So at the end of the day, there was two men dead. After this incident, Orcutt continued to serve with his family and his dog named Sailor. Sailor was actually brought to the island as a two-month-old puppy, and he became a super famous dog, even being in newspaper articles. 
and he was famous as he liked to ring the fog bell himself. Per a newspaper article in 1894, he was not even trained to do this. What happened is the dog would hear the ship come by and he would see the fog bell being put on at that point. One day, the dog heard a ship saluting the tower, but apparently the lighthouse keeper Orchid did not hear it. The dog began howling, running back and forth, things like that, but no luck. The guy still didn't go to pull the foghorn bell. So the dog went out, grabbed the rope, and actually rang the bell himself. From then on, Sailor began unfailingly ringing the salute to the ships every time they passed by. Ships passing by seeing the dog doing this were really surprised, which is how it became so famous. Sailor was also said to deliver mail and other small items to the lighthouse keeper. Sadly, in 1905, Sailor did live a long life, but ended up passing away in his owner's arms. And just a few months later, Orkut, he joined his dog. In 1963, electricity was finally brought to the island, and in 1967, the foghorn bell was gotten rid of, and it was just changed to a fog horn. Lighthouse keepers did remain on site to tend to the lighthouse until 1986 when the lighthouse became fully automated. And at that point, it no longer required a live-in caretaker to keep track of it and make sure it was lit and oil and all that. It is still cared for, but it doesn't require a live-in person. Currently, the U.S. Coast Guard monitors the lighthouse and maintains the light and the foghorn. In 2003, they gave access to the American Lighthouse Foundation, who actually started a chapter to care for the Wood Island Lighthouse. There's also a group called the Friends of the Wood Island Lighthouse, who is a volunteer group who works under the American Lighthouse Foundation, and they actually raise money and do the work to restore the lighthouse and keep it running. They wanted to restore not only the lighthouse itself, but also the lightkeeper's home, the boathouse, and the oil house, all to the time period of how it was in 1906. It has been added also to the National Register of Historic Places, requiring special permissions from the Maine Historical Preservation Commission and the United States Coast Guard to complete the restoration. Along with restoring and caring for the structures, the groups also tend to the seven acres of land and the boardwalk that connect the boathouse and the house. As of today, the tower now has handrails so guests can safely climb to the top of the stairs. The masonry work has also been completed to stabilize the structure and help with moisture issues. And the inside and the outside of the tower have been repainted. The home itself had been vacant and weathered for quite a long time, so it needed the most work and a lot of elbow grease. And home renovations began in 2011, and the home was finally complete and furnished in 2018. The lantern room was built later on in the lighthouse history and was structurally sound, luckily only requiring a fresh coat of paint. The oil house was repaired and is now used as a storage facility, and the boathouse was fully restored in 2016 with a boat now kept under its roof. So it is a little bit of a hike to get there. It's about a half mile walk from the lighthouse itself, so 
know, keep your walking shoes on when you go to visit this property. And you can visit as with renovations, it is currently now functioning for tours. And tours are run by the volunteer group, the Friends of the Wood Island Lighthouse, and start with a 15-minute boat ride to the island. Due to weather, of course, in New England, it is not possible to run the Wood Island Lighthouse year-round, so they only do tours in July and August, as well as a day in September, which is Main Lighthouse Day. Tours are donation only, and you must register in advance in order to take the tour. And if you have that time, it is said that the tour will take about two hours. So definitely something to check out if you are touring New England. And now, of course, why we're all here, I'm going to get into the haunted occurrences that are going on at the Wood Island Lighthouse. Now, in the lighthouse, people will hear doors open and shut, even when they have been locked. Dark shadows will be seen around the property, in the home, and in the lighthouse, even during the day. Items will be moved inexplicably, including furniture and small items. And you will even hear moaning throughout the home. Voices can be heard on the wind throughout the home and the lighthouse, and especially the voices of those of a woman. Footsteps will be here when no one is around, and actually you can hear the echoes of gunshots. Now, some of the reasons why people think that these haunted occurrences happen is some of the deaths that happened on the island. One of those thoughts is that it could be the first lighthouse keeper named Philip Goldwaite who died in service, if you remember. It was reported that he had drowned, and this is correct. For his death certificate, he did die in service by drowning. It doesn't say what he was doing, like was he walking the property and he fell? Was he trying to help with a shipwreck and he drowned? I'm not sure, but he did die on the island and was in service at the time of his death. He could definitely be one of the spirits that is haunting here as he was in service for quite a long time. And if you remember, the lighthouse keeper after Philip Goldwaite his name was Nathaniel Beryl, and it was said that his wife died in the home, and five years later, he joined her in death. Though at the time of Mary Beryl's death, her husband was actually not a keeper at the lighthouse, so she would have not died at the lighthouse, she died elsewhere. She died in November of 1851, and Nathaniel actually took over as lightkeeper in 1853. So while she did not pass away at the lighthouse on Wood Island, her husband did. Her reports, Sailor died on Wood Island as well, so he could be the ghost dog that is thought to be haunting the island. People will see him running around, they will hear his bark, and they will actually hear the sounds of the old bell ringing, even though it no longer rings. Though... Sailor is not the only dog that would have died on the island. There were many pets that actually passed away. Throughout the time the lightkeepers here were farmers during the day, there was tons of different farm animals, dogs, cats that were here. And some of the reports of Sailor state that he is the black dog he was. Others see a shepherd. There's many dogs that are seen, so maybe it is Sailor as well as other dogs that lived here too. The next lighthouse keeper who actually did pass away during his service was that of Mr. Orcutt. 
who, if you remember, was involved in the shooting incident. He was the lighthouse keeper who had been let known what happened with Mr. Frederick Milliken. He actually died at the age of 73 due to pneumonia. And while he still was a lighthouse keeper at the time of his death, he actually didn't die at the lighthouse. He actually died on the mainland in Biddeford after he had been transferred from Wood Island to a local hospital, and this is per his death certificate. Now, while he did not die in the lighthouse, he did spend quite a long time. He raised his family here. He had his dog here. I could see where his spirit would be tied to the lighthouse, and he might be one of the ghosts who is haunting here. He could also be maybe a shadow person who still thinks he's doing his job at the lighthouse. The two most famous ghosts, of course, are those of Mr. Hobbs and Mr. Milliken, who were the men who died in the murder and the suicide. These two men did die very dramatically. It was quite a big incident, of course, the most famous incident on the island even today. So their spirits may linger and might also be the cause of why people are hearing the ghostly gunshots. It could be something like a residual haunting effect that is taking place on the island, even though the henhouse structure no longer exists. There are reports that these two men haunt the lighthouse, but I'm not sure why. Um, Milliken, if he was going to haunt somewhere, you would think it would be his home where he lived with his family. And Hobbs, you would think that he would maybe haunt somewhere else, such as the hen house, things like that. As while there was some associations with the lighthouse, as remember, there weren't a lot of places on the island, they really didn't have a whole lot of ties to it. And while they might haunt the area, you know, again, with the residual hauntings, they probably don't haunt the lighthouse itself. Then there is a woman named Therese Lowell. She was the wife of a lighthouse keeper as well. She lived on the island from 1984 until 1986 with her husband. And she said she believes she actually bumped into a ghost in her bedroom closet. And she said, quote, I know because I felt him, end quote. Her records, her husband served from 1979 until 1982. So while her reports state that she lived here in different dates, she might have just misjudged the dates a little bit. People also see the ghost of a man in the lighthouse who died of a head injury. And I did find reports of this at a nearby lighthouse, but I couldn't find any reports of that here at the Wood Island Lighthouse. There was also a medium who toured the island, and she claimed that a female spirit actually contacted her stating that she was murdered on the island. The medium stated that the female was lost and that an indigenous person actually killed her. She stated that there was actually three girls who were buried in this location and that a shack used to be there. The spirit also told this medium that they were killed separately and the shack was set on fire afterwards, which is why it's no longer there. So while the medium stated this, there has been no proof that this ever happened. No bodies have been dug up on Wood Island, and there are no other reports of anyone else seeing or interacting with this female spirit. 
there has been an indigenous presence in Maine for a very long time, and I'm sure they would have gotten to Wood Island probably at some point. So this is kind of just based on what this woman said. I haven't seen anything else associated with reports of indigenous people. So there's definitely some incidents that have happened on the island. There are some deaths associated, and many people do report kind of the same things going on. And while I could see some of the things such as the moaning, maybe that's the wind, remember the storms in New England, I could see where people hear footsteps, maybe it's the creaking in the lighthouse, but hearing the gunshots and seeing the shadows, you know, people seeing the ghost dog quite frequently. Now, I'm not sure who the female voice would be, as I couldn't find anything about a woman who had actually died on the island. The only people who had died on the island I could find were actually the lighthouse keepers themselves, who were all males. So I'm not sure where the female voices come from. And of course, we've had many animals. There have been men who died in quite dramatic ways. So this could be residual hauntings. This could be some of the spirits of these men who have kept on. And, you know, I would see that there would be some activity here. It's a very old lighthouse, lots of history and lots going on here. But regardless of what I think, I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Wood Island Lighthouse is haunted or not. Maybe you've had a personal experience here, you have some proof, some facts, or you got to tour the lighthouse. I'd like to hear your feedback on it. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and a suggestion you might have for a future episode. Now make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in and don't forget to leave a review. I would of course recommend a five star, but again, I'm biased. And also follow this podcast on whatever site you tune into so you know as soon as a new episode is ready. You can also follow on social media for more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, or you can always shoot an email to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in. And I will catch you all next Wednesday.